Hello and welcome to the Innovation Quotient, a podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives and Alliances at Economist Impact, an arm of the Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast, supported by Philip Morris International, is part of an Economist Impact research programme called the Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation can be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we explore the relationship between the innovation ecosystem and the energy transition. The outcome of the recent COP28 in the UAE was a common commitment to transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. In theory, these international commitments should translate to country-specific policies, but that is not always the case. To help us get a better understanding of where the challenges, bottlenecks and opportunities lie, my guests today are Daisy Powell-Chandler, Partner and Head of Energy and Environment at Public First, and David Burns, VP for Clean Energy at Lindy. Welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Daisy, please tell us a little more about your role and focus at Public First. Yes. My team helps to avert the climate crisis by influencing government policy and corporate strategy. We do that essentially by unpicking tricky policy problems in the net zero sphere, anything from agriculture through to carbon capture or waste. And we use public opinion, we use policy analysis, we use economic analysis, and some of those classic tools like corporate strategy workshops to bring people together and solve those problems. David, could I also ask you to explain your role at Lindy? Thanks, Andy. David Burns, VP for Clean Energy at Lindy. Lindy, one of the world's, or the world's largest industrial gas and engineering company. As part of that, we produce a lot of products which help our customers become more efficient um, and drive their carbon emissions lower. But also we're looking to be able to help our customers as they transition from large, high carbon emissions to a future where they have lower carbon emissions. The innovation quotient examines the strength and effectiveness of country and industry ecosystems in enabling innovation for socioeconomic progress. And by socioeconomic progress, we mean harnessing innovation to solve for the challenges we face today, perhaps the most important of which is climate change. Daisy, this is a global challenge, but I wonder if I could ask you to bring a UK perspective to the discussion. Where are we with the energy transition and what are some of the issues that you're grappling with? In the UK in particular, we are about halfway to net zero. It's something we don't talk about much and we probably should cheerlead a bit more about how far we've come. But a lot of that has been achieved in a sort of almost invisible way. It's been done behind the scenes. But right now we need to start talking to the public and to a lot more of the smaller companies about how we're going to decarbonise. And I think that's a challenge that people all around the world are facing The energy transition is something very real. It's going to make a difference to a lot of the tangible day-to-day activities that we take part in, whether that's flying, driving or heating our homes or what we eat. And there has been an understandable reluctance to tackle any of the areas that are going to change people's lives because that's hard. Behavioural change is really hard. In the UK, what we're having to do now, as you alluded to around skills, is we're having to talk to the population about what's going to change for them. Now, that means talking to people about how they're going to upgrade their boiler next time. But it also means talking to young people about what skills they might train for in order to get great careers in the future. All of that is much 
trickier for companies and governments to deal with because it has a direct impact on elections, on return on investment for companies investing in new products. And it's much harder to communicate with a non-specialist audience about what's happening. So there's a whole load of new skills that we're having to relearn or reapply in this decade that we didn't have to when we were talking about the energy transition last decade. And we're also having to flow a lot of technology down that we've been developing, perhaps in specific countries. So a lot of wind happening in the UK and uh, in Scandinavia, uh, a lot of solar happening out in other markets. And we're having to start transferring those between nations because we need the best from each region that we're developing in order to reach these goals together. So we're going to need to cooperate. We're going to need to collaborate and learn skills from each other in order to get all of these things right and put them together into a gigantic jigsaw puzzle and meet our goals, particularly if we want to hit net zero by 2050. David, you're perhaps at what we could call the business end of the energy transition. Could you give us a sense of your activities and the broader ecosystem within which you operate? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, we've tended to work directly with customers developing opportunities. Uh, What we find now is across the value chain associated with clean energy, we need to work with partners, you know, to fill those gaps where we don't have the technology today, for instance. So in the past, you know, we invested in ITM. We're working with other uh, electrolyzer manufacturers to really develop large-scale electrolysis uh, processes. More of a nascent technology in many ways versus carbon capture storage producing blue hydrogen. One of the challenges we face with the transition is we're looking to transition to a more expensive energy system. There has to be an acceptance on the customer side that it's going to be more expensive, and also on the consumer side that what they many times take for granted, fueling or transportation, or or because embedded in them is the cost of decarbonization. So a lot of government policy has been associated with on the production side. We need more on the demand side uh, to help ease that kind of transition into a into a higher cost. Uh, situation. Now, we're doing a lot to try and drive the cost down. You know, certainly in electrolysis, we see scale as being one of the drivers of cost. Um, but three quarters of the cost of, say, green hydrogen is associated with power. renewable. And so you're looking at renewable power. How can you tr- make that more available at a lower cost? So that's, that's one of the challenges, working with government, I think, to help smooth that transition, to make it an easier transition is key. I think there's a really interesting point in there, if I may. Um, A lot of those costs, as David alluded to, they're actually short-term costs. And what we've already seen with renewable energy generation is that the costs have come down very swiftly, um, partly because some countries have um, ruthlessly subsidised it in order to create uh, scale and speed in those markets. So often in the UK, renewables are significantly cheaper than buying the power from uh, a fossil fuel generator. But we are setting up a whole bunch of new structures that we're going to need on the other side of the energy transition. But but in the middle, there's this awkward bit where you have to set up a whole new load of infrastructure, whether that's a bunch more pylons, because we're going to be using a lot more direct electricity rather than burning fuels on site, or whether that is, for example, setting up pipelines to pipe our carbon out to sea and underground where we can store it away. All of that stuff for gas, we had to do, but we did it a century ago. So what we're seeing is we're having to compact infrastructure spend into a much tighter time frame. And that involves some awkward conversations about how much of that gets passed on to 
energy bill consumers. Um, is that about how much I pay for my heat in home? which is hard right now in markets like the UK, where energy prices have been really driven up by the post-COVID boom and the war in Ukraine. Um, it, does it go on industrial consumers? That's hard for governments to do because we know that productivity is really intimately linked with energy prices for industrial users. Does it go on the government? Of course, that means on taxpayers, but at least the government can distribute it more progressively in that way. So there's a whole load of deeply political decisions that need to be made that could be made with some form of international collaboration as well if we chose to. But at their heart, these are about the decisions governments need to make on behalf of voters and consumers. There's an imperative to do this transition quickly, right? I mean, I think that's the challenge is we don't have a lot of time if we're going to be on that uh, path to 1.5 degrees and net zero, etc., we don't have a, a lot of time to get this right. And so we need uh, to move quickly as we look to scale up and drive costs. So, David, on that point, I'd like to talk a little bit about policy. You're based in the US, which in late 2022 passed the Inflation Reduction Act, part of which is designed to promote clean energy. How important is this law in providing the signals that industry needs to base investment and strategy on? Yeah, I mean, obviously the IRA was a tremendous boost to us as we look to develop projects uh, and opportunities to decarbonize in the US. Uh, as well, $369 billion made available, a lot of that into clean energy. Um, from our perspective, it's a very simple process. You know, you're looking at tax credits, you know, you, so it's up to you to make sure you qualify for those tax credits. Um, but it's really driving a lot of interest and activity, particularly we have 45Q, which is a, a you know, tax credit of $85 a ton on CO2 sequestration. So that's really driving a lot of opportunities in blue hydrogen and its derivatives. Blue hydrogen today is a little bit more expensive than gray. Um, what we're looking at in, in green with 45V, which is a direct hydrogen tax credit, production tax credit of up to $3, we're still seeing green is more expensive than blue but blue is very close to being where gray is today, and it's uh, driving a lot of activity, particularly on the U.S. Gulf Coast, taking advantage of low-cost natural gas, but also good access to sequestration to produce clean hydrogen and clean derivatives, which can be exported to those areas of the world which are short of clean alternatives. So the simplicity of it, I think, is a key driver. Now, of course, this is all on the production side, um, what we'd like to see is something on the demand side to help uh, ease the burden for those looking to use clean energy. So that's when you, you, know, you look at Europe, they're doing a bit of a mix. As, you know, through the ETS, there's a bit of a, a stick as well as a, a bit of a carrot through IPSI and other funding being made available. But the challenge in the EU versus the US is very complex, a lot of different schemes, and it's slower. It's ch more challenging to get the same project developed in Europe than it is in the US. We've got a long way to go to get green to the same kind of level of scale um, as we do for blue. A lot of that is because it's still very expensive for green, even with the production tax credit. But um, certainly the policy and the incentives being made available make it easier for us to do projects in the US than it does say in Europe. Thank you. Our index is based on about 122 indicators across three pillars, the socioeconomic context, policy and compliance, and business considerations. And within the policy pillar, we examine and evaluate a range of categories, including 
environmental sustainability policies and regulatory precision. For example, are policies and actions sufficient to meet the Paris Agreement commitment? Does the country have an industry-specific plan for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and or transition to sustainable energy? I think the overall picture is that there's a lot of work to do, even for the highest scoring countries. Daisy, we, we just heard about the IRA in the US, but what about the policy picture in the UK? This is very much a whole society problem. And so I think some of the best examples of uh, holding governments and businesses to account are actually coming from civil society. We've seen uh, increases in activist shareholders, uh, in legal cases being taken against businesses and governments in order to enforce behaviour standards. But we're also seeing businesses step up and challenge government and telling them clearly what they need in order to behave better, um, what they need in order to show shareholders that there is value in taking more responsible behaviour. And we're also seeing governments step up and take um, radical new approaches, experiment, because this is a, a big enough challenge that it's worth doing. And as David alluded to, what we're seeing is a proliferation of different approaches, some of which may then learn from one another. I know that in the UK, we spend a lot of time talking about the relative merits of the EU approach versus the US approach. And one of the things we hear time and again is that transparency, that simplicity that David was talking about is uh, is something that investors love because they can type numbers into a business model and they can work out exactly what the risks and the potential opportunities are. And that's great. Uh, one of the reasons that the UK hasn't been able to follow that model is that uh, we started really early in the carbon capture game um, and it's difficult transitioning from a sort of early adopter funding model through to a more standard business model. And it's a process that uh, has been a little tough over the last few years, but we've made real progress in that. I think the flip side to the um, demand and production sites that David was talking about is also that that point about broader clarity from government about the direction of travel. And I think that is one of the reasons it's sort of easy to poo-poo the progress made at the international level. Uh, you know, oh, are governments really stepping up and fulfilling their treaty obligations? Uh, how much progress is being made? But there is huge value. We hear time and again from civil society and from businesses in governments articulating the vision and the deadline and explaining what they're going to do to reach it. And some of the, the worst examples we've seen are where that gets muddied, that there isn't a clear articulation of what the plan is, how we're going to get there, and that it is possible. I think we're going to need a lot more optimism over the next decade as we go through this tougher, crunchier bit where we have to talk to the public a lot more, where we show them what life is going to be like at net zero. We show them the advantages of that. And we talk a lot more about why we're trying to achieve that. Without that, I foresee we're going to have a lot more issues with uh, labour negotiations, for example, we're going to have a lot more difficulty with trying to convince people of the positive benefits of some of the behavioural changes that we're talking about. And this is going to prove politically uh, very um, disruptive, um, as we're already seeing in countries like Australia, where this is having a big impact on how people vote. Thank you, Daisy. David, you were just explaining about the positive policy environment created by the IRA, but perhaps you could also talk about the regulatory regime and the extent to which this enables or impedes innovation when it comes to the energy transition. The US, by the way, ranks third on the regulatory position set of indicators. 
the key to, for us as we look to make um, large investments, you know, I mentioned the $1.8 billion investment on the Gulf Coast right now. That's part of a portfolio of projects we're working on. You know, over the next 10 years, we're looking to be involved in something like $50 billion of investments in clean energy. So for us, it's, it's, a, it's a massive commitment. And when you're making large investments, you need predictability. Um, you need to make sure that... Uh, you know, the, the rules in place today are going to be the rules in place 10 years from now because, you know, the investments we're making, they're 15, 20-year investments. That's kind of what we're looking at. So I think, you know, that, that kind of taking the risk, um, I guess it's the, the risk around policy changing uh, um, or incentives changing that you've based your project on. You have to make sure that, you know, that you've got a firm footing when it comes to putting a project together that you can really stand, or the governments will stand behind their commitments today. We expect them in 10, 15 years to be doing the same thing. Having said that, I mean, these uh, you know, tax credits in the, in the US are critical for these projects to get them off the ground. Uh, I think other programs such in, in Europe, the CBAM, you know, the, the um, border adjustment mechanism are critical as well to make sure that we don't have uh, you know, deindustrialization of Europe to reduce carbon emissions only to import products which may even have a higher footprint. So I think it's critical that um, you know it's it's a kind of holistic approach to to policies. Um, and I think um, you know CBAM plus incentives in Europe is a good way to go. In the U.S., it's all it's all driven by incentives. But um, I, I think in the end we'll, we'll get there. I totally agree with David on all of that. But I would add one thing which is that we've talked already about the scale of some of these investments and the fact that some of this is still relatively new technology or it's being used in a different way than when it's been used previously. And one of the things we also hear from investors is that there is an appetite for new investment forms, either government co-investment to help with things like permitting and to ensure some of that stability that David was talking about, or allowing for larger forms of private equity or venture capital. Um, so allowing people to come together in groups so that risk is shared across uh, a group of companies um, and allowing for a variety of different funding types to flow into projects. So there might also be the need for new investment types in order to enable some of those bigger investment bundles. Interesting you said that. I mean, I think another perspective we're looking at is um, to help bridge the gap is contract for difference kind of projects, particularly favoured in Europe, you know, whether it's H2 Global or the Green Bank. And the UK is looking at some contract for difference tank projects. So we're a big uh, believer in contract for difference as helping get us over the hump, if you like. On the point of partners, one of our key findings is that collaboration locally, nationally and internationally is key, and, and especially so when it comes to addressing global challenges such as climate change. Daisy, how well do you see the relevant actors coming together in the UK? What are some of the issues that need a collaborative effort to overcome? Um, I feel like every company I've ever spoken to would say the planning system. Uh, there's, there's a big problem. And even in the US, which has created a lot more transparency and simplicity around how you access tax credits and other forms of incentive, they still haven't worked out how you get a planning system to work well so that you get your permits sorted in time to build the damn thing. Um, in the UK, the same problem emerges. Uh, a lot of the power is in the wrong part of the country. We could have stronger locational pricing signals within our power system. But then how do you get over the fact that you might not be allowed to build where it makes rational sense to build power generation? The second point I would make is on the skills and people side of things. 
we are going to need to get better at talking to each other. Uh, I saw a news item yesterday saying that um, one of the big um, telecoms providers in the UK is laying off uh, a bunch of engineers because people don't need satellite dishes installed anymore. But you know what the whole globe needs right now is uh, electrical engineers. For pretty much every one of the transition industries, there are massive skills shortages. And instead of getting into a big international fight where we try and steal each other's engineers, which in the end is a zero sum game, like, that doesn't actually help people. What we should be doing is really intelligently reskilling engineers who are falling out of industries that are no longer needed, partly because of the energy transition, but possibly also for unconnected reasons. And working with unions, working with communities, working with big employers to say, how can we get them into great skills training programs that allow them to then get well-paid jobs that are going to be crucial for the next three, four, five decades that will help them to build a new career, but also help us to build the green industries we need. Mm. So, David, on that point about skills, there is a very live issue in the States, a very live political issue as well. How are you managing this crunch for talent that Daisy referenced? To be honest, I think that's one of our strengths is that we have, over the decades, built up a large engineering pool, a large technical pool of skilled individuals who know how to make hydrogen, how to operate hydrogen plants, and the same on the atmospheric side, oxygen, for instance. So we have a lot of skills uh, engineers, you know, whether they're working on a conventional hydrogen project or working on a clean hydrogen project, same skills required. So we already got the jump start, we feel, on that. In fact, it gives us advantage. And how are you preparing for that? Does that mean sort of closer collaborations with universities or with vocational colleges, for example? Yeah, I mean, um, over, over years, we've supported um, development of skilled welders. You know, working with some of the community colleges in the Gulf Coast is to make sure we have a, a pool of uh, skilled welders because ultimately these projects are going to require huge amounts of construction support and labor and then once they're built we can then own and operate them over the long term with our you know, operating team operating crews um, so we need the skill set to be able to design them we need the skill set to be able to build them and then the skill set to operate them safely and reliably over the long term thank you daisy just to come back to you on that skills point if there was one sort of policy measure that you would like to see the government focus on when it comes to developing and helping to develop the skills that we need for the energy transition, what would that be? I think there's two ends of this, a bit like the demand and production here. So at the one end, what we really need to see is better communication about the kinds of jobs and the job prospects that are available. Because what we see when we do research amongst young people who are currently considering future career paths is that they think green jobs are mostly in construction. And when they think of construction, they think of sort of um, bombs out builder sites. And they don't necessarily think of that as a quality career to be going into and neither do their parents. So these aren't jobs they're seeking out. They also, and this is where we come back to the clarity and the vision, think this might be a fad, that those jobs might not exist in a decade or so. So it's really important that we're having that level of communication. And then it's really important that we're having that higher level of collaboration between employers, between government planning and between local authorities and colleges so that we're making sure that we're training people up in the right skills. We're offering them the right courses that they can then use to get legitimate jobs that exist and are there is demand for in their communities. 
and that local unions are part of that process as well so that there's access for everyone in communities that may be losing fossil fuel related industries but have the potential to gain an even higher level of jobs and a greater number of jobs from these new green industries. Mm. David, we often hear that younger people coming into the workforce are seeking opportunities to work on something with purpose, to build careers that offer rewards beyond monetary compensation. Is that something that you see? Yeah, maybe just add one point to what Daisy just said about um, what we look at is as we're looking to attract new uh, employees, um, a lot of times they're looking at Lindy and realizing we are well positioned in the clean energy space. They look at Lindy and see what we've been doing in the past, but what we're looking to do in the future and how we're still connected with the transition. And for many of them, that's an exciting proposition. They want to work for a company they can feel proud of, but also one that they feel is going to make a difference when it comes to the transition. And I think we, we in Lindy, we see ourselves well positioned there. I absolutely agree. And I think, I would just say, I think all this links back to one of your other headlines from um, the innovation quotient around local and collaboration yes it can happen at an international and national level but a lot of what we're talking about here is about local collaboration it's about understanding the skills profile of an area understanding geology of an area and the industries that they already have there these companies working in uh, many of these communities have been there for decades, like Lindy. It understands an area, it understands the people. And harnessing that and working with unions, with local government, with national government to create place-based strategies that mean that everyone can be involved in this transition is going to make a big difference to the political buy-in that we get for really important changes coming up over the next few decades that allow countries to be enriched by the transition rather than destabilised by it. That's a great point. We fully agree with that, Daisy. Well, on that point, our time is up. It's been a pleasure to engage with you and to hear a little bit more about the energy transition from your particular vantage points. My guests today were Daisy Powell-Chandler, partner and head of energy and environment at Public First, and David Burns, VP for Clean Energy at Lindy. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.